where does interpersonal strife or conflict come from? Where does it come from? This is the question that James asks in the very first verse of James chapter 4. Where does the strife come from in our lives? James tells us where it comes from. It comes, and if you read that opening passage there, which is not our text tonight, but if you read those verses, James tells us that our strife comes from our own lusts and fleshly desires. It comes from our lust for what others have around us that we want. It comes from a desire just to have our own way. And this strife that results wreaks havoc in our relationships with those around us and ultimately in our relationship with God. And so we've got to get to the root of the problem of strife. If you want to get rid of strife, you've got to root it out, right? Like when you look at your flower bed or your front you know, area right there that's, you know, you've got your mulch and all that, but what happens? The weeds come up through that mulch and you can mow it down, but all you've done is chop the top off, right? You know, the dandelions and the, you know, all that stuff. Of course, not too many dandelions in Florida. I remember dandelions growing up, right? Remember, and they would have that big white head and then you'd blow it and then you'd spread all the weeds of the dandelions across... <laughs> your whole beautiful lawn, right? But if you want to get that stuff out of there, you've got to do more than just mow it down or cut it off. You've got to get to the root of the problem. And it's the same thing with issues in our lives, and it's the same thing with strife in our life. And so our main problem in our lives as humans, as human beings, is pride. This is our problem. I mean, like, you know, we, let's just call it, just, just speak plainly here. Our biggest problem in our lives is pride, and all sin flows from the granddaddy of all sins, which is pride. All the other sins are just the little grandkids of, of pride. All of our lusts can be summed up in pride, us wanting our way our thing, our, our deal. Thankfully, God provides a remedy and a cure for pride. And not only does he provide a remedy and a cure, he came to the earth and he demonstrated it to us. He demonstrated the cure. He doesn't just have a cure. He literally demonstrated for us the cure. What is this remedy? What is this cure for pride and ultimately all the other issues and problems and namely conflict in our lives? What is it? What is the cure? Humility. Humility. It's called humbling ourselves before God. And see, Jesus, he has the answer. He has the cure, but he also modeled that perfectly, right? He humbled himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be held onto or grasped, but he kind of let that go and he came to earth and he put on flesh and he appeared. He took on the form of a servant, taking on human flesh, and therefore he humbled himself and, and walked among us as a man. And so... He showed us the cure. 
It is humility. Now, the, the question really, when you talk about humility, it's always you have to start with a good definition of humility because humility for a lot of people, they think it's just kind of having this general attitude of kind of woe is me, you know, woe is me and woe is me. And that's kind of like, you know, that can really fall into a kind of a false humility. You ever get around people who have a false sense of humility and that's not it. Humility isn't just walking around saying, woe is me, I'm no good, that type of thing. That can really be uh, a false humility. So what is it? It's understanding your place and your position before God. It's living your life in full submission to God. James here in chapter four, he details each step that we need to take in humbling ourselves before God and living a life of full submission to God and thus having the cure for conflict in our lives. And so tonight is a really, you know, I guess, I don't know, every time I do an intro and I say this is a most profound, fundamental section of scripture, I mean, I feel like I want to say that every week. Why? Because the word is so relevant to our lives and it's so transformational to our situations. And I believe that this passage is very transformational for the Christian life. So we need to take a look at uh, what James has to say about the cure for conflict. So if you're taking notes tonight, I've got this point, humility is the cure. Humility is the cure. Let's pick it up in James chapter 4. Let's pick it up, verse six. He says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The solution to our problem of conflict is being humble before God. This is the solution. God wants to bring his grace into our lives, and the only way that can happen is if we humble ourselves. If you read the verses above that that we didn't read, James really goes through this list of all these things that bring in, just wreak havoc in our lives. Sinful desires, and it all stems from pride. And really where that plays out in our interpersonal lives is when there's a conflict and we don't want to uh, find the solution to it, we want to you know, maybe we're more interested in being right or, uh, you know, whatever it is. And we really do better for ourselves in following Christ and with other people in our lives by finding that place of humility before God. Uh, th this really, really does wonders. We have a real choice. Do we want conflict in our lives brought on by covetousness, worldliness, and anger? Or do we want the grace of God in our lives. That's ultimately the choice, and you have that in that moment. You can, you can find a way to humble yourself in, in each and every situation, and chances are, no, it's a good, 
up, good thing that that's going to be the better path. We, we, we kind of have that. We come to that crossroads. We get in that situation. What should we say? What should we do? Which way should we go with this situation? And the way of humility, although it's not the one that's got the blinking lights and the one that's kind of drawing you, but it's the one, it's the path, it's the choice that's going to be the better choice. It's going to be the solution for the problem. Most people would say, I want what God has for me. If you ask them, if they believe in God, do you want what God has for you? If there is a God in heaven and he's got something for you, the question is, do you want what he has for you? Wow, that's a great, that's a great question. Do you really want what God has for you? The question then becomes, if the answer is yes, is do your actions line up with actually wanting what God has for you? Because there is a way to receive what God has for you. And God has told us in this section of Scripture, these verses that we've read, God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So grace can be summed up in a lot of different ways, but it can be said this way, and I want to say it this way, it's what God wants for you. God wants you to receive his grace. He wants to pour his grace uh, into your life. Jesus said it this way to Nicodemus, by the way, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And ultimately, you know, what is he saying? He's saying God, God didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to give grace to, 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 to have people receive what God wants in their life because they already are condemned. They're already standing. The, you know, the, 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 the reality, the truth of the gospel is that outside of Christ, the world already stands condemned. We're already, uh, uh, the way that Paul put it to the Romans was we're already the children of wrath. We're already under the curse. We're already condemned in that sense. So God didn't send the son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to, but to put people in a place where they can receive what God has for them what he wants for them, amen? And what he wants for us is grace. God wants to give us grace. He resists the proud. That's why pride is never the right move, right? Pride and, and, and taking that prideful position in any situation in our own life, even if it's in our private life, it's not the right move. It's not the right move interpersonally. It's not the right move um, in, our, in our walk with Christ, Humility is the, is the path. Humbleness is the path. Why? Because it's in, as, a, as we humble ourselves before God that we put ourselves in the position to receive God's grace. Humility is seeing ourselves the way, it's first and foremost seeing ourselves the way God sees us. You, you first come to humility when you, when, when, when you walk through that path of coming to Christ, here's how it happens. You realize you come to the, the, the work of the Spirit is done in your life in such a way. The, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you, and he has a specific job description. 
And that job description is to convict and to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? And so he wants to convince and convict you of sin. That's his work. And that's why resisting the work of the Spirit or blaspheming the Spirit is the unpardonable sin because you haven't let the Lord, the Holy Spirit, do his work in your life. And so if you end up in a state of having not allowed the spirit to do his work in your life, then you haven't been forgiven. And you're still under the curse. You're still in that place of condemnation. That's why it's the unpardonable sin. But the Holy Spirit, who's the paraclete, he's the comforter, he's called alongside to convict and convince us of our sin. And once we're convicted and convinced of our sin, it's, it is kind of this moment of woe. Whoa, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Because God's standard is perfection. He says, be, be holy as, as, as I am holy. Be perfect. You want to have eternal life? Be perfect, right? We can't be perfect. The only way we can be perfect is if we come and, and receive, humble ourselves before God and receive his perfection, as the grace as the grace that he wants to give into our lives. So humility is first seeing ourselves the way God sees us. And then after the fact, after you've been saved, after you've received that grace, humility is continuing to walk in the way God sees you. So how does God see you after you've been saved, after the atoning work of Christ's blood has been performed in your life. Well, he sees you as a, redeem, as a person who's been redeemed, who's been, who's been justified, who's, who's, who's been sanctified, who is being sanctified, and is a son or a daughter in the kingdom of God. And he sees you through the, 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 the perfection of his son. The perfection of Christ is kind of, you know, laid over top of you so that we have that position and we walk in the humility of that. And that is really what we need in our lives um, and, and, and moving forward. And this opens up the doors for everything else that God wants to do in our lives, in leading us day by day, in, in, in calling, in direction, in, in all kinds of different things. So Paul said it this way in Romans, and we talked about this in our study in Romans, and I'll put this up on the screen, Romans 12, verse 3. He says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so we're called to not to think more highly of ourselves, which is generally the problem, but then there's a few people that go around and think too lowly of themselves. We're to have a proper estimate of ourselves in the eyes of God. And this is what it means to walk in humility. This is what it means to think soberly. Paul says, think soberly. Uh, it's to be of sound mind, to be in one's right mind, to put a moderate estimate upon oneself, to think of oneself soberly, right? And part of, 
part of soberly, part of thinking of oneself soberly is not to think too highly of yourself, but it's also to think correctly about what your position is, who, what the work of Christ that's been done in your life. And when we think about that, when we think about, I'm not to think too highly because before Christ, I was, a, I was, I was just a bold-faced sinner out there, shaking my fist at the heavens. You know, Paul put it this way in Romans, we were literally, there was an animosity, there was an enmity between God and man, right? And he came to break down that wall of separation. And now that he's done that and that work has been applied to my life, now I need to think about that. I need to think soberly about what God has done in my life. So it, it isn't as if our humility earns the grace of God. You say, well, if I humble myself, then I'm doing something to earn the grace, right? And this is where the Calvinists have a lot of problems. Well, you can't do anything to earn your salvation. You can't humble yourself, even though it says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, right? It's, it seems to, be, seems to be saying for you to do something. Your, the, the humility that you take on, the humbling thing that you do in humbling yourself in the sight of God isn't that which earns you the grace, but it puts you in the position to receive the grace. Amen? There, there used to be a song or a saying, I guess. I can't remember, but it's like, I want to get under the spout where the glory comes out. You know, that, that's kind of the idea. Humbling yourself puts you underneath that place where God can pour his grace into your life. So the humility that you take on is not earning the grace, but it's putting you in the position to receive the grace of God. So how do you humble yourself before God? James tells us. Look at it, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God. Wow, this is the situation. This is the thing that we do, need to do in all those situations where we're at that crossroads, <laughs> where our flesh is raising up, where that thing is that temptation or that lust or that conflict is happening in our lives. It may be the war inside of us or it may be the conflict that's out here. We've got, we, God says, submit to God. James says, submit yourself to God. Submitting to God is humbling yourself under his rule and authority in your life. Submitting to God is humbling yourself under his rule and authority. When we rule our lives, we make a real mess. <laughs> you know, there was a line in a Whiteheart song years ago. He says, I bend to the land of me, and I know that I was never free. You know, when, when, I'm, when I'm ruling my kingdom, it's not good. It's not good. And so being submitted to God is being submitted under his rule and authority in my life. When we submit ourselves under his rule, we can experience the benefits of his leadership. The question for each and every one of our lives is, are we submitted to God? Are, are you submitted to God? Ask yourself the question. 
Have you completely surrendered to him? Are you living your life, taking direction from him? He's the ruler in your life. He's the king. You're in a kingdom and you have a king, right? You're not trying to get out of the kingdom. You're not like uh, Harry and them over there. We don't want to be, no, Prince Harry, Prince Harry, right? You know? Are you in a kingdom? Are you in a kingdom and do you have a king in your life? That's the question. That's the question. I read, I read a, a thing that someone had written about the definition of success in our churches. And I actually thought this was really good. What, what is the definition of success in our churches? In our church. The definition of success in our churches, this is the quote, the definition of success in our churches shouldn't be the number of people gathered in a room for a service. The definition of our success should be in how many lives are truly surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How many lives are truly surrendered who understand what this thing is about? That what is the first thing that Jesus came and preached? He says, Be, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we miss this? Open up the gospel of Mark and just start reading. When Jesus comes on the scene, what did he, what did he come to preach? He came to preach a kingdom. He, he says, I have a kingdom. He's standing there at the crucifixion. He's standing there with the pilot. Yeah, I have a kingdom. I have a kingdom. Oh, you're a king? Yeah, I have a kingdom. It's not of this world. He came preaching a kingdom. And somehow if we miss in this day and age, in this 21st century, if we miss conveying to this culture and to this next generation of believers that they're part of a kingdom and they need to be submitted under the rule and authority and the direction of a king, then somehow we've missed it. If we've, mass, if we've filled stadiums and rooms and we've had services and we've got so many services that we can, we've got more services than we know what to do with, but we've missed declaring to a generation that it's about a kingdom and that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords and we've come to give our lives and submit it under the lordship of Jesus. Then we're going to have rooms filled with people filled with strife and conflict and everything else and we're going to be no better than the church of Corinth when Paul had to say, look, this stuff that I'm seeing in you, it's not even named among the pagans. You read that in Corinthians and you're like, what? Help me help you. Right? Help me help you realize that you've come to the kingdom. You lay down. You lay down your life. And you, and you, and you walk that aisle and you come and you give your life. You give your life to him. He says, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And in each and every situation... This is the answer. He says, submit to God. Submit to God. When we have given in to carnality, we have given the devil a, foot, a foothold. That's why he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Right? That, right look at that. Verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
when we give into the when we give into carnality, you read the first part of this chapter, those first verses. When you're right in there, when you're reading there and like James, you're reading my mail, right? We've given into carnality, we've we've given the devil a foothold. Now, when you think about giving the devil a foothold in your life, you think about like the really bad stuff that's gonna that you're gonna do. Like if I went out here tonight and I just kind of started, you know, carousing and doing all this stuff, I would be giving the devil a foothold. But you know what? When we give into carnality, we're giving him a toehold. It's like the door's open and he's sticking his toe in there. Let me see if I can get it in there. You know? We got to treat every situation like we're getting an email from a fraudulent bank situation. I got this email from the bank that my, 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 my information needs to be updated. Okay? Don't fall for this. This is a first class scam right? And this is what the devil's trying to do to you anyways. He's trying to scam you. It's a fraud. It's a scam. It's been a fraud since the garden. Amen. And he's trying to scam you. He's sending you an email. He's sending you a text. He's sending you a, a, a you know, Instagram story. And it's all a fraud. It's all a fraud, but he wants to get a toehold. And if he can get a toehold in there, then he can get a foothold. And when we give in to the carnality, we give in and we give him a toehold, we give him a foothold. And that's why he says here, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Now, what does it mean to resist the devil? We say, resist the devil, resist the devil. Okay, I'm going to run out and resist him. What does that mean? What does it mean to resist the devil? The, the word resist there is from a, is from a Greek word. It's, it's actually from... Two Greek words that mean stand against. To resist is to stand against. So when you submit and you humble yourself before God and you receive the grace of God and you submit yourself to God, then you receive that grace. And he will lift you up so that you can stand and you can stand against the devil and he will flee. Amen? We've been called to stand. And the problem with, with what, what I see is that we don't have a boldness in the Holy Spirit to stand for Jesus. We need, a, we need the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth right? Well, we think of being a witness as a person who's out there on the corner with tracks, right? Being a witness. But what Jesus is saying in that, the word witness in the Greek New Testament is the word martis. It's actually where we get the word martyr. He's saying you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be the type of person that lives this life for me in the face of death, And what that means is that we've got, to re we've got to submit our lives to God and we've got to resist the devil, which means we've got to stand against. And this is the way Paul put it to the Ephesians. 
chapter 6, verse 11. I'll put it on the screen. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Right? Put on the armor of God. What was the armor? My goodness, this is like a, this is a series all in one message, right? <laughs> what is the armor of God? The armor of God was the, the, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's all about your relationship with Jesus. You're putting on salvation. Is salvation on your mind? Is it on your head? There's a reason why the salvation was a helmet, right? Remember, even in the Old Testament, the high priest wore the turban with the gold-plated emblem. Remember that message? Fashion statement. Everybody wants to wear their cap with their, you know, the LV and all of it. Well, God has a brand, and the brand of God is holiness, holiness to Yahweh. That's what was engraved on the gold-plated. You want to get a gold-plated? Hat, because the high priest had one, you know, just cruising. No, he wasn't doing that. He had a, he had a hat with a gold-plated engraved badge on it. Holiness to Yahweh. So put on that armor. Put salvation on your head, on your mind. Put the righteousness of God on your heart. Put the belt of truth, put truth and gird yourself in truth. Put the gospel on your feet. Take up the sword of the spirit. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. When you put on the armor of God, that's what you're gonna be able to stand against. The reason why people can't stand against, they can't stand against, they don't have the armor. They don't have the armor. And maybe they haven't even submitted to God. So the, submit to God, resist the devil. Stand against the devil and he will flee, right? The devil is a bully. He is basically a bully. And like any bully, as long as you let him bully you, he's gonna keep on bullying you, right? And people just... People just let the devil, you know, and, and I get it. Sometimes, you know, you, 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 you've got it where you're coming out of wherever you come out of, and it can be a real struggle. But the longer you don't submit to God and stand against the devil and take on the armor of God, the longer you're allowing the devil to have a toehold, a foothold, the, long, the longer you're letting the bully bully you in your life every day. And you know what you, you know what the you know what you got to do to a bully? Remember what 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 was it? Christmas story, right? Ralphie finally finally had enough, right? Ralph <laughs> Ralphie finally now I'm not advocating, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating. I mean, he let out all the remember they bleeped it out. I think it was bleeped out just to show that he was just giving it to him, right? But he never heard from the bully again. When you put on the armor, when you take a stand, you can, you can 
limit and resist the devil in your life. And it says he must flee. He will flee. Amen. Submit and stand. But then he goes on. So you, you want to get rid of this con the conflict and confusion in your walk with God. You submit and resist, stand against, and then draw near. Draw near. Look at it, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God. James is telling us that we have got to draw, we've got to constantly be in a stage of where we're drawing near to God. We got to draw near to God. We got to draw near to God. Wake up in the morning and draw near to God. Draw near to God. And the, and the promise is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? He's telling us make a conscious effort to draw near to God. It's, it, you know, to draw near to something, you literally have to, you don't kind of drift into, you know, he's not saying drift into being near God. He's saying draw near to God. He's saying make a conscious effort to reach out to God and God will draw near to us. Now, one of my favorite bands historically, as you know, is, is, is the band Striper. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm good friends with with uh, the, the guys in Stripes, specifically Oz Fox. But anyways, they had a song that literally tells this message. Uh, back in, 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 in their album, Soldiers Under Command, right? Soldiers Under Command, and this was, this was the lyric. I was looking for the answer all the time. Always looking, never finding. I was empty inside. Falling into darkness, needing the light to see, reaching out for shelter, then he set me free. I reached out, you reach out, he'll reach out today. I reached out, you reach out, he'll reach out today. Draw near to God, and he's going to draw near to you. Amen? If we are far from God, he hasn't distanced himself from us. We have distanced himself, ourselves from him, right? That's why we need to draw near because he hadn't moved. God hadn't moved. God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We're the ones that drift. We're the sheep that go astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone to our own way. That's why... It's not a flattering picture for us as people that, you know, human beings are compared to a she sheep and we need a shepherd, right? And that's why, the, you know, in the psalmist, the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters, right? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod of co correction, the staff that gathers the sheep, the staff that keeps me, in the flock is, is that which comforts me. Amen? So I'm old enough to remember the cars that, we, we, you know, when we all, had, when we, everybody had really big cars, right? Rob has one. I'm not talking about like these big sedans of today. I'm talking about, we used to call them boats. <laughs> all right? We had, we had one, it was, a, I don't know what year it was, but it was an Oldsmobile, 
and it was red. It was a 98 Olds. It wasn't a 1998. It was probably a 68. Because <laughs> that thing was old when I was a kid in the 70s. Yeah, so, yeah, it was a 98 Olds. They had the 88. They had the 98. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, and we called it Big Red. And this, I believe, was before the, the gum. Before there was the Wrigley gum. And we're still waiting for our royalties on that. <clears throat> right? But I remember those big cars. And they had the, that big front seat, right? They had the big back seat. You get six kids back there, right? And as Sinbad said, you could put a couple more babies in the back window, right? And then you had that big, long front seat, right? And I don't remember this per se, because by the time I started dating... Everything had gone to the bucket seat. So I don't remember being on a date, you know, and having your girl all the way, like, right next to you, right? You used to be able to go on a date, and, right? And she was right there, right, Rob? Right? She, he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I had to pick up. I mean, Rob's got the big boat. Did you bring the boat tonight? Oh, man, bucket seats, man. Okay. So anyways, so, so listen to this. An elderly couple drove down the road in their car with the big front bench seat. As they drove, the wife noticed that in many of the other cars with couples in the front seat, the woman sat close to the man as he drove. So the wife asked her husband, why is it that we don't sit that close anymore? And he simply answered, it wasn't me who moved. <laughs> he was still driving the car, right? It is, it is for us to say and recognize tonight, it is not God who moves away from us. We drift from him. We need to draw near to God. And that's why it's something that we need to do every day of our life. We need to draw near to God. We need to continue to realize that every day we're on that pilgrimage. We're on that pilgrimage of worship, right? And that's why in the very next sentence, or in that sentence, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is, this is a, 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 a pattern of, of encouragement that is taken right out of Psalm 23 or 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so this was the admonition for those. This is a Psalm of worship. It's a Psalm of ascent, right? The idea for the Hebrew, for the Jew was that you, you were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And when you got to Jerusalem, you were climbing the mountain to worship God, right? So the idea is you, you climbed the hill. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Purify your hands, clean, clean your hands, purify your heart. Um, allow the Lord, who is it that, that, that cleans us up, right? It's God through his blood that cleanses, his water 
that washes, the water of the word that, that, that blows off, that rinses off the residue of sin in our life and produces a pure heart in us. And he says, you double-minded. In other words, I, I think I talked about this last week that there's this idea in scripture about being singular, being, being that person of integrity, having a simple, single heart and mind, and not a double. And we were talking about vision last week. So double vision is not what we want. We want a singular vision. We don't want a double, you know, double-minded in that sense. We want a pure heart. We want a, a heart of integrity to worship the Lord, right? So we are sinners who need to be in a constant state of repentance um, we can be very double-minded. We can, we, we can, we can, we can be double-minded, <laughs> right? Earlier in this book, James says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, right? So it's so important. When you see the double-minded, you see the, unst- the instability, the instability. If you want stability, it's found in a pure heart. It's found in a... In, a, in that singular focus, amen? So let's wrap this up. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The idea of this, is, you know, because you, you, you want it to say the opposite of that, right? You feel like, wow, that was so good and, you know, wouldn't, Verse nine had been better to say, you know, rejoice for you've conquered the devil and you've resisted and, you know, jump for joy and laughter. And no, the reminder of this, the reminder of this is to stay in that place of poverty of spirit. You know, Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount and he says, uh, Blessed are they who mourn, right? For they will see the kingdom of heaven, right? Blessed are they that have that poverty of spirit because that's that humble heart. And so we need to stay in that humble heart. So that's why he finishes up verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God will lift you up as you humble yourself in his sight. This is a promise. This is a promise of God. If we are truly humble before him, he will lift us up. He will give us what he desires for our lives. He's a, he's a father of lights. He wants to pour good things in our lives. But we need to wait on him. We need to trust him. We need to humble ourselves in the sight of God and he will lift us up.